Welcome back, Latinos in Clinical Research. We're interviewing Dr. Beer from the Multi-Regional Clinical Trials Center, uh, affiliated with Harvard. I Last time we did the interview just one-on-one, I, I had my Harvard hat on because it was like a souvenir I bought when I went to the campus. I could never dream of getting into Harvard, but <laughs> I could get the hat. Uh, if you have a debit card or a credit card, you can buy the hat. So, uh, if you go to Harvard, you get a 10% discount. That's right. That too. That's all you get from it. I got, I got the Basically. umbrella. So we did this talk, just me and Dr. Beer, last week or last year in the middle of the lockdowns. And it was really before all the social justice movement started coming to uh, front and center, but we were still talking about diversity back then in clinical research. And we didn't even have Latinas in clinical research back then, but I, I brought up because I kept interviewing uh, Judy and, and having conversations with Judy, who's extremely passionate about this. Hey, you know what? There's a real issue with uh, getting more Latinos participating in clinical research, language barrier, a whole bunch of stuff. So we did get into some of that conversation, but I wanted to bring Dr. Beer back on for all of you gals and Chris uh, so that you guys can ask questions yourself. And um, before we do that, doctor, can you just give us a background on yourself and why you are involved with MRCT? Sure. So my name is Barbara Beer. I'm a professor of medicine and pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and a hematologist oncologist at the Brigham and Women's Hospital. Um, I've long been involved in clinical trials as investigator, as a research, you know, sort of support person um, running different uh, programs, but then, uh, and, and, and been the institutional official at the Brigham for clinical research and for all research actually. And about 10 years ago, started with a friend of mine, a research and policy center at Harvard and now at the Harvard Brigham um, called the Multi-Regional Clinical Trial Center, which is a a research and policy center um, dedicated to the ethics conduct and uh, regulatory environment, particularly of multi-site, multi-national clinical trials not doing trials, but looking at sort of how trials are done. And, you know, this, this issue of underrepresentation in clinical trials of, you know, underserved populations, and that's beyond race and ethnicity, that's also includes age at either end of the spectrum for certain therapeutic areas, women and, and you know, the incarcerated, there are just a lot of marginalized Uh, populations that never get included, that's been true for a long time. Um, And we saw that about three and a half years ago and thought, you know, we could really make, dig into this and make recommendations about how to fix it and how to do a better job. So we got a work group together um, and uh, co-led with, by the FDA and, um, and a, 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 a cardiologist at Merck and a psychiatrist from Columbia, and then about 50 people from all walks of life, uh, patient, patient advocates, industry, academia, CROs, everybody, um, to really think about each step in the clinical trial process and what we could do to bring about change. 
Um, that report was basically finished the first the first version because it's never going to be finished. I hope it will be, but I'm, uh, it's going to be a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, and we made it available in August. And, and unfortunately, um, it landed at a time in history when people were really looking for um, approaches to change our future uh, with, you know, George Floyd's murder and then with the emerging data about COVID-19, it, it, the social factors um, and the evidence, the biology just were inescapable. So since then, this is all we've been really doing uh, and focusing on. Uh, and there's a lot to, to discuss today, but that's the history of this. Do you, do you work mainly with like sponsors doing that or, um, or with sites kind of combination of both or everything oh, in between? Question. So the, the center has um, unrestricted gifts, but also grants. And those gifts include um, pharma companies um, and uh, nonprofits like the Gates Foundations and others. Um, we don't, if, if we're gonna do any project for, you know, with specific deliverables, then it's a grant. And then it's got all the bells and whistles. Otherwise it's unrestricted and we have autonomy over what we do and say and what we choose to do. Although, you know, it, we're not gonna solve any of this unless we all solve it together. So we're very much a proponent of getting all the stakeholders in the room together to define and then uh, to define a problem and then figure out the different aspects of a solution. Because if a solution works for um, for all, it's likely to have uh, a, you know greater impact. And if you can identify why something doesn't work for one group and modify the solution before you try and make it work, you're more likely to be successful. So we do have pharma sites, CROs, clinical research organizations, patient, patient advocates, regulators, um, IRB professionals, depending on the project, journal editors, whoever should be in the room. We try to get currently in a virtual room, but nevertheless in a room. Okay, so. great. And I guess since you've been doing this for 10 years um, with MRCT, what changes have you noticed maybe in the past year compared to the prior years? Have you noticed a lot more changes in what you're doing that have changed what uh, like sponsors are doing within their protocols and things like that? Oh, great question. So um, yes, uh, so let me say a few things about it and I'm not sure that I'll be complete, but the things that come top of mind are one, I think there's um, much greater global cooperation and company collaboration and, uh, and sharing of information than there was. Second, I think the public is way more attuned to, the, to clinical research in general and to the need to participate and to think about it and sort of what's comfortable for them for the, as an individual. Um, and much more engaged in the entire conversation. In terms of how clinical trials are conceptualized and run, I think there's a greater appreciation of the importance of having patients, par potential participants, communities, 
participate in the planning, mm -hmm. the outcomes, the questions itself that we address and sort of building those bridges um, to be a much more partnership model. We've got a long way to go, but it's, it's now an agenda and it's on the table in a way that it wasn't before. We've done a much better job of what we call decentralizing clinical trials to getting those trials nearer, either in the home or nearer the home so that people are only coming to a, a, a center if they need to, um, if they have to be seen. But the idea that people used to drive for two and a half hours to sit in a waiting room for an hour to have somebody look at them and say, oh, you look well, have your blood drawn. Then they get back in the car, drive another two and a half hours when they could have gone either down the block or had a home health aide come in and draw their blood and looked at a telephone, you know, a telephone and said, I'm fine. It is just a complete change in the way that we're thinking about trials and thinking about lowering the barriers to participation. Um, so that's been a major change. I also think the regulators have been very flexible. A lot of this, a lot of this frankly instituted out of necessity. We could not deploy the hospitals um, and the clinical trial sites as sites when we were social distancing and needed to be careful. And yet we needed to learn, learn both what's effective for COVID-19, but then also continue the trials that had been started when they were critical for, you know, learning about sort of what works in disease, for diseases for which there isn't another approach. Congrats, Dr. Beer, for, for getting published in the Science Magazine. I actually subscribe uh, and saw the article. Uh, can you kind of talk to us a little bit about what, what the topic uh, uh, was? It's just as diversity and research ethics review. Can you kind of give us, I guess, a summary of what the yeah. issues were and what the findings were or recommendations sure. were? Sure. So um, as you all know, in a clinical trial, uh, the protocol writer, whether that's an academic or uh, an industry partner writes a protocol um, with all the bells and whistles, everything they're gonna do, all the data collection, all the procedures, et cetera. But before they can actually um, activate it and initiate that protocol, it's reviewed generally, certainly all the ones that we do by an IRB, by an institutional ethics board or review board that looks at um, the safety to you know, make sure that the risks are minimized, that the um, benefit exceeds or at least is equal to the risk and, and warranted by the risk of the, of the, uh, of the protocol. And that there's, uh, you know, um, procedures for voluntary informed consent and that the informed consent document itself is clear and we'll get back to that. Um, but, um, and, and up till now, the IRBs haven't really taken the, you know, assumed the responsibility for saying that their, their job is to ensure justice as much as you know, autonomy and beneficence, making sure that the good outweighs the bad. And, um, and they have in, as historically grown out of a 
system of uh, real abuses in our society. Um, so their, their posture has been much more protection of vulnerable populations rather than vulnerable and other populations, marginalized, underserved, underrepresented populations should be included. And that one of their commitments should be the affirmative sort of strong stance that in order to have just clinical trials, the information needs to be generalizable at the end of it. And that includes all populations, or at least those that are intended to use and avail themselves of the intervention under study. Now, obviously, you know, that'll vary depending on the kind of disease or what you're looking at. But, you know, what we saw initially in some of the COVID trials, for instance, was even though Black and Latinx populations were getting this um, infection um, at a greater rate and severity than white populations and American, you know, American Indian, Native Americans, um, the clinical trials didn't reflect that. So that, you know, why isn't an IRB responsible, at least in part for asking the question, what about representation appropriate to the disease? So that's the position we took and um, laid that out both as a theory piece, but then also here are all the practical steps you can take as an IRB to say, are you inclusive? You know, is it translated? Is the informed consent translated? Have you made provisions for recruiting in a site which has this population? Are the recruitment materials appropriate? Is the conduct appropriate? Are you paying people for their expenses or not? You know, lots of things, and I'm happy to talk about all of those, but you know, in the past, it's not been um, that lens that IRBs have looked through when they're looking at protocols. So we wanted to sort of lay that out um, and say, this is appropriate, it's a role, it's not beyond, it's not scope creep as they like to say, um, it's absolutely core to who they, the, the, the responsibilities they have. Um, and that's not to say that we took a position on what the IRB should do about it. We didn't say in this instance, you should reject the protocol because that's very much a facts and circumstances issue. All we did was say, here are the questions and the way to approach it, not telling them this is what you should do. Wow. Well, wow. thank you so much. Yeah, so much. Wow, this is just, uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. We I should post this question. on our page. <laughs> oh, <laughs> post gosh, on our page. Yes, this is probably yeah. one of my favorite interviews. <laughs> yeah. Um, doctor, I have a question in regards, for example, the COVID-19. Do you think this was the force that brought up or, or, or actually... Uh, surface more these fallacies that the industry had? Really great question. I think that it was a combination um, that the murder of George Floyd and all the people before him and all the people after him um, really sensitized the, the social climate and the consciousness of everyone worldwide actually. Um, not that that was um, a, a new event, but it was 
so dramatic because we all saw it in and saw it and you know you could not escape it in a way that somehow um it had happened previously i'm not exactly sure i'm not a social scientist so i can't tell you but um and then on top of that we saw this huge health inequity before our eyes unfolding with data that was also inescapable And then you have to step back and say, what can we do about this? Because this, if we put our hearts and souls and for some, you know, resources behind it, this is a, 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 at least a fixable problem. We should be doing better and not, not, you know, data manipulation. Like now you get people to self-define a little differently. My great, great grandmother came from you know, not that kind of fixing, but a real fix that is going to be over the long term, um, see a difference, um, which I think is, if we're successful, will result in health equity in a way that we haven't appreciated before. Now, all of that is not the responsibility of pharma companies, and it's not the responsibility of community health centers. It's all of us, and we all have to get committed to figuring out how to do this and be comfortable having really tough conversations with each other. And I can't tell you how much I've learned personally, even though I, you know, I thought I was enlightened. What did I know? You know? So I have to be, you know, even um, conscious of some of the assumptions I make and sort of un, un you know, you have to unfurl. Uh, a lot of our history in order to figure out a new approach forward. So I think it was both. Um, Doctor, I have a question. So, you know, given, you know, how you, you work for a big institution as well as, you know, I'm sure you're connected with other big institutions given your work and how much um, you say ground you have to cover when uh, coming up with this information, but would you, would you say that, um, it's organizations, maybe not just looking at clinical research uh, or even outside communities, but all the more reason as to why, at least on the health aspect and clinical research side that, you know, these big pharmas and sponsors and CROs should be actively communicating with organizations that represent these communities uh, on a more one-to-one basis, as opposed to just, you know, reaching out and just having, you know, one meeting, but actually getting involved in and showing representation, you know, because I feel like it's a lot of, um, you know, let's post, uh, let's do a webinar, let's do that on health equity, and then that's kind of it, right? I, how do you feel the the image should be as far as you know, concrete communication or relationship in order to assist, you know, the work that you're currently doing as far as being able to address the the disparities, right, and understand the difference. Yeah, uh, so I, I think it's a really germane and important question because um, I think it would be ideal if we all had, um, you know, a way of connecting individually. The challenge, just to put it out there, is, you know, it's one by many and the many are greatly exceed the, the, the connector kind of thing. Um, and also I'm very conscious that we are careful about how we define community because community itself is complex. I mean, every geographic community is actually 
lots of micro communities, um, the way that, you know, uh, you know, I don't know, Latinx get their information is different in New York than in, you know, Arizona and, and different again, you know, in California. Mm -hmm. um, and that's all different from the way that Asian Americans get their information, trusted information. So um, having a sense of who those trusted intermediaries are um, so that it's not a pharma company is expected to go to all of these communities, but rather we have a network of trusted, um, uh, you know, sort of um, a web of trusted uh, individuals, organizations, and entities. Mm -hmm. I think is probably um, going to be more workable, but we do need all of the health institutions the that's not only you know pharma companies and biotech companies but also academic centers and then the community health centers and the clinics and the referral docs and the you know to um to work together in a very different way than we have before so dr beer um mm -hmm. i actually referred someone to you guys yesterday because i didn't have an answer I don't expect you to have an answer either, but I think it gives us all um, some insight into some of the questions that people have out there. So if you don't mind, I'll read it. I don't know if they reached out to you yet, but uh, let me just read it. Okay. So uh, I had a, I am new to clinical research. I have landed a position at a hospital as an IRB administrator. I am learning many norms were accepted by my organization that I believe could be improved. I am navigating how to implement changes. The changes involve the reporting of subjects, sex and gender in clinical mm -hmm. research. I had concern when reviewing adverse event reports and seeing that our reports ask for gender and only include male and female selections. I feel this is discrimin discriminatory to subjects whose gender may not fall into one of the two selections. I also do not want to misgender anyone involved in clinical research. Um, so basically, this is their question. I would love to hear your insight on how to propose changes to our clinical research department that will ensure appropriate inclusion. So what I told this person was, this is way over my head. I think it's obviously important if people feel it's important, but I referred her to you. I hope you don't Great. mind. <laughs> no, I love it. Um, so you know, although we've done some work, we still have work to go. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things we pointed out in August of last year that, you know, people say gender and they mean sex. Um, and, you know, the choices are male, female, uh, and prefer not to answer as, you know, and that's gender. And I think, um, you know, we need to unpack that. And, and I think it is the, there are lots of issues embedded in that. Sometimes the biology is very important to know someone's gender at birth or sex at birth, which is actually what it is. Um, and then we should ask a secondary question about gender, gender preference. But um, one has to be careful because that is also pretty sensitive information in some contexts. Um, so we, we need to figure out how to ask that and then record it in a way that is 
uh, appropriately thoughtful that we don't create other problems for individuals. So on the one hand, it's disrespectful to some, but it may be sensitive and problematic for others. And indeed in some cultures, it's illegal and a, you know, a, a, a criminal offense or civil offense, I don't know, they end up in jail or stoned to death if that, if that is ever illuminated. So one of the follow-on projects that we are going to do, probably initiated in a few months, is begin to get a work group together to think about not only what questions should we ask, how should we ask them, how should we then record that data so that it is, you know, um, sort of uh, appreciates the individual's circumstance, but then informs the data and the biology behind it, um, and then make recommendations about it. You know, so none of these things are really easy. Um, and I think we've got to sort of find a path together where, where um, we've put enough thought into it that we can now say, this is something that we're ready to test and learn whether we've got it right or whether we, we don't, you know, yeah. um, and remodel it and continue to remodel it. One of the things I think we need to do is change what the government, you know, has five classifications uh, for, for race and two for ethnicity. I mean, you know, we are a, a largely a, um, a uh, you know minor majority minority population now that doesn't define us anymore, you know. <laughs> so and if you go outside the walls of the U.S., you certainly don't you know have like you know people don't know what you mean when you say Hispanic or black is the same as African American or you know. So we're just not at a place where we know how to do this work yet in a respectful way. Yeah, good answer. I mean, I think that's kind of like illustrative of, of your organization's importance and growing importance in these times that we're in now. Uh, so thank you for that. Hopefully the person who will, we will keep anonymous gets yeah. the answer that they want. And they should reach out because they can be part of the solution. My answer was oh, reach out to MRCT. Yeah, Dr. Yeah. Beer, I said, this is where you have to go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Definitely. Um, you know, I did have a question because you had mentioned about how um, the protocol writer, um, you know, creates the protocol. But when they're doing that, um, and with any study, any condition, um, who exactly are they just are they consulting with? Is just this on the pharma side? Do they ever reach out to sites to other people in the industry? Because I feel lately a lot of the protocols we work on are very, very strict and they exclude a majority of our patient population. But then, you know, we recruit these patients and they don't really reflect our, the patient population with that condition. So <laughs> it's kind of, so I, I, you think it would be, you know, they would change that and, you know, get more feedback from sites, you know, what does this protocol look like? Because I know when I get them from the beginning, I already know this is going to be a difficult trial to recruit for. I think the sponsor is being too optimistic on the recruitment goals. <laughs> yeah. And then context. we do. We, 
Yeah, Just to give we you end some up... context, Dr. Beer, Judy owns a research site for like, I don't know, 15 years in Imperial, California, which is almost 100% Hispanic. Uh, so these are issues that she deals with day in and day out. Um, yeah. And then we have other site owners here as well. So just wanted mm -hmm. to give you some context. That's great. So um, let me say uh, uh, the following. Um, I think that certainly um, the protocol writers they're a little different if they're pharma or academic. Um, the pharma are certainly bigger, better trials in general than some of the academic trials, which are more individual investigator working on, you know, 10 patients to see what happened and get a biopsy or whatever. Um, but these therapeutic trials are definitely consulted broadly. However, <laughs> um, they often have come from a history of having done trials in a certain way and adopted a pretty narrow specification for who can be enrolled because they know what the history is of the responsiveness of that population and therefore are testing a new intervention in comparison to something that they know. Now, the problem, which I don't have to say to you, is that once that product gets approved, it's then opened and available to everybody, regardless of demographic, regardless of, you know, comorbidity or whatever. Um, and that's a problem uh, because we don't know exactly whether it works in the same way for a person X versus a person Y, whatever those demographics are. Um, and in some ways, the way I think about it is it probably, you know, it, once you divide the population in all of the different, you know, sort of dimensions of, of diversity by age, by sex, by, you know, gender, by race, ethnicity, by socioeconomic class, by comorbidity, by blah, 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 blah you're never going to power a trial to get an indication for each of those subgroups but you can see whether the direction is similar. Are you gonna benefit or not? It doesn't say you're gonna get 30% better on average, but is the direction in the same, you know, sort of, yes, we're gonna benefit generally. And then we can do trials after approval to find out what the degree of benefit is. Um, now to open it uh, broadly, should be consistent with what we know about the drug or intervention because you want it to be safe. You're not gonna start things on you know, pregnant women and children. You wanna make sure that things are safe and have a likelihood of being successful before you expose um, folks who have other issues. Um, so I, I think there's a real role for, for um, starting small and then broadening those eligibility as the knowledge base extends, which is very different than saying, you know, we should we shouldn't necessarily involve a cohort of Hispanic um, individuals who otherwise would be fine but they speak Spanish and we're not making a Spanish consent form available. And we've got some other, you know, sort of, I don't know what the, what other characteristics are we um, to exclude them. That I think we need to change. Now how to change that and how to, you know, 
is it just Spanish or do we say, okay, what are the three most common languages in your, you know, sort of area, region? Um, is it three or six? Uh, do you translate before the trial begins or at, let the trial begin, make sure that, you know, then you do the translations that are necessary? Now, I have opinions about this, um, but it's not settled as to how we should be approaching it. Um, and there are things that, you know, until I started really digging into this, I didn't really understand. Um, one of which, and I think they're all solvable, but they are issues to solve. One is, you know, for a lot of trials, it's important that the coordinator, the, the, the person who is reaching out to the participant or that explains the trial, it can speak the language so that you really do understand it. Um, so it's beyond just the consent. It's not, you know, a form that needs to be translated. It's an experience. So the process for someone to consent um, involves real understanding. And that, that I think, you know, a site like yours can do, a site like mine, probably for Spanish, probably for Creole, probably for some other common languages, but get to, you know, um, I don't know, Russian or it, it's challenging. Right. So how broadly do we make this as an as an expectation? That's number one. Number two, a lot of the outcomes that we have are basically for, developed and validated in English. So depression scales or, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's conquerable. We can there are, you know, we've done studies in Spain, there are depression scores in Mexico and Spain and, you know, and we could, we could really start to work on that, but we need to work on it. And we need to say, okay, it's fine now, but in two years, it's no longer fine. Um, and then there's one other very practical question, at least in a non, uh, you know, sort of non-dominant um, uh, language, which is that when an interventional trial, if you recruit somebody that may have an adverse event, we have to make sure that they have access to someone if they have an adverse event or a side effect that they can talk to. Now that has been brought up as a huge barrier to me as, you know, so we can't do that because who are they gonna call in the middle of the night? My response is, that's no different than clinical medicine. If we've fixed it for medicine, there's no reason to exclude it for clinical trial participants. So I think we've got, you know, this is a journey. We got a lot to do, but I think that's part of what we should be doing. And I think, you know, for any given community, you should know your community well enough where you're recruiting from that you take, take care to do that. Um, yeah. Doctor, thank you. Uh, another question is, for ex if we know already those uh, problems and obviously uh, the uh, regulatory organizations know those problems so well, why are they no um, 
make him mandatory or or strengthen the, the these uh, re regulations in order to to truly make the 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 uh, clinical trials uh, diverse. Because one thing is asking for it, and another thing is actually making it happen. Yeah. So I, I don't think there's anybody that I've met on this in this work that isn't fully enthusiastic. The regulators, however, can only regulate as the law allows them to do. If they don't have the legal precedent to say you must, they can only say you should. And that's the, that's the challenge. Now, of course, a current regulator will never say to me, I wish the law were different because they're not allowed to say that. <laughs> but, um, but the art here is to figure out what levers they have that are within the law until there is enthusiasm for changing the law. But before we change the law, I do want to think about what that would mean. Because you know, one might say it should be representative and I, I'd, be, I'd be there with you if you said that, but what about very rare diseases? Shouldn't you, you know, let, if there's a new product that might treat um, a rare, a, an ultra rare disease, you wanna get that product to patients as fast as possible. You don't wanna wait for the you know, 1% or 2% um, Asian Americans that might have it or the 3% uh, because you're gonna be waiting a very, very long time, which is, wow. I don't wanna be, I don't wanna be picking on Asian American, but I'm just trying to say, you gotta be careful that you've thought about all these little, not little, but real questions. Um, if you're talking about you know, common diseases, it might be different, but, but I once did a study now long time ago uh, in, uh, you know, where we specifically had a recruitment goal for children under six, black or African-American, and we never could recruit that group. Now, I, today I would have a lot of levers that I didn't know how to pull 30 years ago, but, um, but so that trial never finished and, and therefore I really believe that the first thing we should do before requiring it is make sure that the plan is inclusive, make sure the plan is done before we even start the trial to have inclusive enrollment that we've done the translation for Spanish, for instance, of the informed consent document. So we don't get to the point where you've got 30 patients, participants that could come in and all of a sudden we're waiting three months for validated informed consent. You know, do all of that work up front, then see how we're doing and don't wait till the end of the trial to say, oh, I missed the target. Evaluate that at three months if you're recruiting quickly, at six months if you're not, or yearly at a minimum, so that at the time you're seeing, well, I need to change my efforts in this population. I've recruited 
you know, people with diabetes from 18 to 65, but really 20% or more should be over 65. So let me target that population, you know, before the end of the trial. And if, if it becomes a much more intentional exercise, and I don't mean that in an instrumentalized way, I mean a, a commitment, um, I think that we'll do a lot better and we'll learn how to do it well. The last thing, I, I obviously I have a lot to say about this, but, but um, I love, I love yeah, passion. Yeah. You have no the idea. Other thing, <laughs> the other thing I'll say educative. is <laughs> I don't, I, I never want to be in the position of um, creating a situation where we're unwittingly, um, you know, sort of influencing somebody to join a trial. We should we should help them make a value concordant decision for themselves. And we should make sure we understand what they want and why they're making a decision so that we can address it. You know, it's too much of a burden. I have four kids at home, I can't leave, you know, whatever that is. Um, or I don't trust research and why not? But I don't think we should ever be in a position where, you know, the end of the trial is such that we induce that behavior in a way that isn't isn't respectful. I agree. Thank yeah, you. You, have, um, you brought up so many points and so many yeah. you know things that we've discussed. And I, I agree with you that we need to come and work together so we can solve a lot of these issues, these questions that you've raised and how can we um, as sites, as clinical research come together to to maybe solve some of those in the next, you know, several years. What can we do? Right. Yeah. Right. And what are your thoughts? Uh, <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> got a, a group together to address this, right? So Latinos in, in yeah. clinical research is at least to my knowledge, a new group I didn't even know about before <laughs> today. Yes. Well, I mean, primarily is definitely raising awareness of clinical research in all communities um, on the patient side of it, educating them, providing them the materials, as you mentioned, in their language so they can understand exactly what is a clinical research study, what they um, might need to consider when participating in a clinical research study. But then also educating the younger generation to get into clinical research, mm -hmm. to work in these industries that we need help with, that we need the representation to recruit um, these patients in the different communities. We need both sides of it. Um, that's definitely you know, one of our goals. Yeah. And I think now that holds more true than ever that we should be doing that and that we're on the right path because you know, just hearing you speak, there's like Monica said, uh, learned a lot of knowledge today, some things that I didn't even know. And it makes me that much more aware of just how deep the work goes and how far it still needs to go, even though we've came a good long ways in the past three to five years. And so, you know, all the more reason why um, educating everybody. And then like, like Judy said, you know, letting the next generation know and pushing them and, you know, we're not pushing, but, you know, uh, definitely providing them resources so that they can know like, Hey, you know, this is an industry, you need the representation. Um, you can do it just as much as anybody else. And, and um, coming from a previous pre-med background, um, you know, I didn't know what research was. I thought I had to be a scientist. And so when uh, I ended up in this industry, I was really grateful and even more so having met, you know, Judy, Monica, Dan and Chris, because um, 
it's given it's a whole other meaning to another purpose. I mean, you already get a lot of purpose in clinical research. Now doing this, it brings a lot more to the table and uh, helps everybody be a part of a major change that uh, is coming. I mean, it's here, right? So um, thank you so much for everything that you do. And, and the work that you're doing is so vital. And I hope that we can definitely keep the connection, the communication going and any way that Latinos in clinical research can do to help you you and your team would love to be here. But I have to say the reverse is true. We thank you for your work. Mm-hmm. We're, we're not touching the participants. You're doing, the, you're doing all the heavy lifting for us, you know, and we're just helping nudge a little bit in the right direction. <laughs> thank you, Dr. Beer. Thank Both you. of our organizations are in this for the long haul, it seems yeah. like. I mean, just to give you some context, in a few hours, we're all jumping on a Zoom call with a, with a community college in a primarily, predominantly Hispanic area. And we're investing our time so that these nursing students who graduate understand clinical research because most of them stumble into clinical research on accident. So I really think it's going to take the, a grassroots approach mm-hmm. to increase minority participation in studies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if you have a relative or somebody, you know, who works in research, you're more likely to at least consider clinical trial and not instinctively think guinea pig. So mm-hmm. we're invested for the long haul, just like you are uh, knowing you guys for about a, at least a year, if not longer. So I think we're on the same page there. But thank you again for coming on. My pleasure. Thank and you. thank you. All thank you so much. Yeah, this is great. <laughs> great. If anybody wants to get a hold of you, uh, where, what's the best place for them to do this? Probably my email, which is bbeer at bwh.harvard.edu, b-b-i-e-r-e-r at bwh.harvard.edu, or MRCT center at bwh.harvard.edu. Thank you. And also a very engaged Twitter account, MRCT Center. So it's at MRCT Center. Um, they're very responsive, actually. The the lady who runs the Twitter or manages the Twitter is doing a very good job. I can't recall her name right now, but just let her ben know. Ewing. There she you go. Amazing. She is amazing. I agree. She's amazing. I yeah. agree. So that's a good way to get a hold of them as well. Thank you a lot, Dr. Beer. Thank I really you. appreciate thanks it. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Have a good day. You too. Bye.